Uh, well, if y'all would have a seat, uh, and while you are doing, um, uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17, so if you want to pull out a copy of uh, God's Word to us this morning and be turning there, that's where we're going to be spending our time. But before we get there, if you're anything like me, sometimes uh, it can feel like it's been a long time since you've uh, spoken with the Lord of this universe, uh, and for some of us, it's because it has been a long time. And, and there are a couple of reasons why we tend not to go to God. I think one one of them is, is sin. We just feel like there's something that uh, um, just separates us still from Him, that He doesn't want to hear from us. He doesn't want to speak with us. He, he couldn't possibly want to hear the things that we have to say. And so uh, this morning, me and my kids, we were sitting around uh, the table this morning. We were talking about repentance because we were uh, talking about Acts uh, chapter 17. And uh, uh, we asked our kids, what is uh, repentance? And Jackson said, well, it's confession. It's, it's going to God and confess. And so what I want to do this morning before we uh, go any further in this service is actually, I just want to lead us in a time where uh, whether it's been a really long time or whether you spent some time this morning praying to the God of this universe, uh, you can just pray and confess sin. So if you would bow with me. God and Father, you are the great King. You command all of our affections, but we uh, tend not to come to you because uh, we feel, uh, still feel beholden, still uh, feel shackled in some ways by our sin. So Father, we want to spend some time just uh, this morning confessing those uh, to you. Uh, just right where you are this morning, uh, spend the next uh, few seconds just uh, confessing sin to God. Just tell Him. Uh, he knows, He sees, He sees all things, He knows every motivation of the heart. He's not surprised by it. Spend some time confessing sin. Father, you are a gracious and good God. Your steadfast love knows no boundaries. You pursue us all the way to send your son to the cross. Even to death, you pursued us. So, Father, you tell us that uh, if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins because of Jesus Christ. And so we thank you. We enjoy grace this morning. We have assurance of it in our hearts. Lord, let uh, sin no longer separate us from you. Let us come to you as children, knowing that we are beloved by a father. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what we will find in Acts chapter 17 this morning, specifically in verses 22 through uh, 44, we, we're not covering the whole chapter. Uh, we're just going to zoom in on Paul's trip to Athens. That's what we're going to be doing this morning. But what we'll find there is something very surprising, uh, especially if you've been with us uh, through this Acts uh, journey. Uh, we've, he's been going into synagogues. He's been preaching the gospel. He's been run out of town. He's been stoned. Lots of bad things have happened, but in Athens, something very surprising happens. What we find is, is that there is good news for the good life. There is good news for the good life. That's kind of what we're after here this morning. And uh, before you pick up some stones uh, against me and go, hey, that sounds like some false prophet stuff right there. We're talking about the good life. 
That's what we're talking about? It sounds very familiar to me. It sounds like a TV evangelist. And in fact, I've, I've floated this out there to a few people, and I've even gotten some like, not just blank stares, but like, hey, I don't know about this good life stuff. It sounds, it sounds just uh, other. It sounds not gospel-oriented, not gospel-centered, not Jesus-centered. I want to take the opportunity this morning to show you that it precisely is. It precisely is. Everyone, you see, has some sense of the good life, okay? Everybody. You're like, that's a pretty big statement. Every person in this world has some intangible, ineffable uh, thought about what a good life looks like. It doesn't matter if you're in Asia, if you're in the Middle East, if you're in Scandinavia, if you're in Canada, if you're in Mexico, if you're in the United States, if you're in Texas, if you're in Fort Worth, if you're in this church. Every person has a sense of the good life. A lot of times it includes, uh, it includes uh, things like being moral. It, it includes uh, leading a meaningful life, leading a majestic life. Uh, you may not be able to verbalize all of this, but it probably has something to do with goodness and beauty and truth. And we can be honest, it can be dramatically different uh, one to the other. Some of us might see the good life as a good career or a good family, just simply being useful to other people. Some of us just, our greatest desire is just to have a place, just to be useful to others. Others of us, we want to see uh, just other people desire us. A lot of times, I, I mean, that I feel like especially like really we gravitate towards that in like late high school and college, like we just have this desire to be desired. And, and if we could just be desired, that would be a good life. Still others desire pleasure, not pain, or maybe you're in pursuit of intelligence. What, whatever it is, the good life is kind of this tableau of what your life, or maybe even beyond just your life, but what society ought to look like. In, in some ways, it's just the good life is what you think that a life of flourishing might look like. The good life is uh, the trajectory and the destination of your worldview, how you actually see the world, and whether uh, consciously or unconsciously, you gravitate towards this good life that you think is out there. Now, I, I've got a book in my hand. Uh, for those of you who have been around, uh, you know I'm not necessarily a person that pulls uh, just kind of extra biblical texts like in to read them, especially at any kind of link. Uh, but I was reading this about a month ago, and I shared it with the guys from my discipleship group. Uh, and it was written by a guy named uh, James K.A. Smith, which is how you know that he's smart. He's got more than one initial. He's using it. Now, to be fair, his name is James and Smith, so he's got to throw at least one initial in there, but the two means that he's pretty smart. I want to read to you what he has to say about the good life. To be human is to be on a quest. To live is to be embarked on a kind of unconscious journey towards the destination of your dreams. As Blaise Pascal put it in his famous wager, you have to wager. It's not up to you. You're already commuted, uh, committed. You can't not bet your life on something. You can't not be headed somewhere. We live leaning forward, bent on arriving at the place that we long for. The place we unconsciously strive towards is what ancient philosophers call of habit our telos, our goal, our end. But the telos we live towards is not something that we primarily know or believe or think about. Rather, our telos is what we want, what we long for, what we crave. It is less an ideal that we have 
ideas about and more a vision of the good life that we desire. It is a picture of flourishing that we imagine in a visceral, often unarticulated way, a vague yet attractive sense of where we think true happiness is found. That's what the good life is. Did you, you catch, I know that that's a lot of words, and, and I would recommend this book if you're wondering about it. I'll put it in an email later this week because it is just excellent, and I think that it gets at the heart of who we are as human beings. But did you get what he was saying? He was saying that whether consciously or not, you have this idea out there, this imagined world of thriving that your heart tends towards, that you gravitate towards. It's the thing by which we judge ourselves. Oftentimes, people who struggle with depression mightily have this idea of what the good life is, and they feel this sense of longing that is just cut off from it. That's what the good life is. It's this thing that we strive towards. And in Acts chapter 17, it gives us a view of the interaction between the good news of the gospel and this good life that we ought to be living so I'm going, to, I'm going to read our passage for this morning just so that we can kind of know where we're going. Verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, we, uh, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing of something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with an inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Bring then God's off, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this he has given 
assurance by all or to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, and some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. So what we find here is that Christians declare, when we declare something very specific, Christians declare the good news, the good news, for the good life to all people everywhere. Christians declare the good news of the good life to people everywhere. That's what we're supposed to do. But, but in order to understand that, we have to really come across three things and then make some application on evangelism, right? We've got to understand three things. The first one is the Athenian idea of what the good life is, the Athenian good life. What did they think that it was? Because Paul spends a lot of his time uh, not just studying and knowing it, but uh, reciting it back to them, telling them about their own good life that they desire. But he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say, hey, I understand your Athenian idea of the good life. He goes beyond that to tell us about the good news of the gospel. So the second thing we have have to understand is Paul's good news of the gospel. And thirdly, we need to understand the gospel good life. So the Athenian good life, the good news of the gospel, and the gospel good life. That's where we're headed this morning. And then we'll make some application about evangelism. First, the Athenian good life. The, the Athenians had a vision of what the good life was. Paul was continuing on his missionary journey. In fact, we skipped over at the beginning of this chapter his time in Thessalonica and Berea, but he comes there to Athens. And Athens, by this time that he was there, has already seen kind of its peak, and it hasn't fallen the way that Rome would fall. It was a, a group of city-states, and so there wasn't just like one thing to fall. Athens was still there. It was still a vibrant city uh, it still had influence, but it was it kind of crested and it begun to fall. Just a few hundred years earlier, if you had been there, you would have seen uh, the very influential uh, philosophers, even to us today, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. But even as it declined in importance, its history still shaped the values of the Athenian people and the surrounding world, even Rome, very deeply. Paul encounters, we see uh, in verse 28, art in the city. We're going to see him actually use the art of the poets that had been writing there. He was encountering the art of the city. He was also not only uh, seeing that as one of the values, he was seeing philosophers, philosophy as one of the things that was valued in this city. In verse 18, he even talks, uh, uh, it mentions him talking to the Epicureans and the Stoics, and finally, there is religion in this city. In verse 23, he mentions the object of their worship. So but Paul is encountering the things that make up the good life of the city of Athens. And, and Paul doesn't just like observe them. He has imbibed the heart of the culture and he's identified what the Athenian good life is all about. And what he finds there, for those of us who are always so quick to demonize culture, I can be that way, is that there, it's not categorically evil. Not all of it is bad. He sits here and he goes through art and philosophy and religion, and he doesn't seek to uh, immediately kind of categorize it as ugly or irredeemable. 
He's going to find these things and find a way to leverage the gospel into them. So what does he do? He memorizes Athenian poets. Did you catch that there? He's reciting back to them in the Areopagus. He's reciting poetry, their own poetry, not somebody else's poetry, Athenian poetry. Why? Because it's part of who they are. It's part of knowing and understanding. He says that they are kind of feeling their way towards God. Even these polytheistic artists have a way of trying to uh, feel their way towards the gospel, but they're not there yet. He's not just uh, memorizing Athenian poets. He's very familiar with the philosophy of the city, the philosophers of the city. And he says that they're searching for some truth. In verse 21, it says that they're all kind of open to something new. They spend, uh, all Athenians, it says, uh, they spend their time doing nothing but hearing new things. They're very open-minded as a culture. And and Paul doesn't want to spend time like demonizing that. He doesn't want to spend time like squelching that. He's wanting to understand it so that he can leverage it for the gospel. And finally, he understands their worship, their religion. He visits the temple. He visits the marketplaces in which there are all of these shrines to all of these gods. It's important for us to know in uh, the kind of context that we are in that uh, intellectualism, which Greece certainly was, was not at odds with religion. These were some of the smartest human beings who have ever lived, writing some of the most uh, testable works of human history, and they have stood the test of time. They were smart. They were intelligent. My kids today learn about these things because there is substance and there is value. He becomes familiar with them. And he sees in verse 29 that the objects of their worship are made of gold and silver and stone, that there are dozens of them, hundreds of them, even one in particular which he'll highlight. But the Athenian good life was experienced by being open-minded and intelligent and creative. It was experienced in worship, just worship of a different kind. Did you catch that? The the Athenians are not like a, uh, uh, just simply like atheistic, very pagan, pagan culture. They actually have gods. They're pretty, they're religious. The question is, for us, in the midst of seeing this Athenian worship and trying to bring it into our context today, what is the American vision of the good life? Athenians had one. Today we have one. I think that we're actually in the midst of a great change in what, uh, uh, generally speaking, Americans are really after. What we see is the good life. It used to be that uh, maybe prosperity was the thing. You wanted to, it was like the American dream to own your own home, maybe to start a business. America had centered a lot of its values around prosperity. Uh, We've seen in the past that there was a, a sense of place that there was some type of ownership of the, uh, just the geography that we are in. Americans and part of the good life has just been simply this like frontier nature of our nation, going west, individualistic and finding your place. What about patriotism? Now, here's the deal. In in each one of these things, prosperity, place, patriotism, even in saying them out loud, you know what I'm talking about. You know that they're part of the values of the culture from whence we came, but we're not all so sure that that's what's going to endure into the next generation. 
It's changing. And in some ways, I'm kind of excited because, uh, not about necessarily the change, but I'm excited about this text because the Athenian vision of the good life seems to have a lot in common with the culture that seems to be being birthed out today. The worldview, the values, the good life that's being spoken of today is one of open-mindedness, intelligence, creativity, and it's all a means of worship. That's what the Athenian good life is, and it's what I think that we should consider today. What is the good life here in America? But this vision of the good life broke Paul's heart both because of how close and how far away they were from God. So just in understanding something of the Athenian good life broke Paul's heart, and he's going to declare to them good news. Verse 16 says this, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked. This, this word provoked is very strong. It's not just this, like he was uh, kind of sad about it. It was like he was just provoked. He was brokenhearted, and it was something that resulted in action. So he wanted to declare the good news to them. I wonder if you've ever been provoked in your spirit when considering the culture. I wonder what you've had to say. Paul sees their pursuit of the good life and what it has led to. And what does it say there in verse 16? He was provoked in his heart. Why? Because the city was filled with idols. I wonder if you've been the same way. I wonder if you've looked at the culture that we live in here in Fort Worth. I wonder if you've taken a look at the idols that are in your neighborhood and just been brokenhearted about it and provoked to uh, speak a word of truth because that's what's going on with Paul here in Athens. Paul sees that their pursuit of the good life has uh, led them to a place where they were in a city filled with idols. So after apparently familiarizing himself with the city and its values and its customs and its tradition and its art, the good life, he then acts. He doesn't remain on the sideline. He isn't quiet about it. Paul begins to reason and preach. We see that in verse 17 and verse 18. He, he begins to reason and preach in the synagogue and in the marketplace. In, in weeks past, we've seen him go into the synagogue and stirs up such a strife that it kind of flows out into the rest of the city. This time, he's going to the synagogue, but he's also going to the marketplace because that's the center of culture. And the people hear him, the Epicureans and the Stoics hear him, and they say, what is this guy babbling about? He must be a preacher of foreign divinities. Why? Verse 18, because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. Now, here's what I want for us to do just for a moment. When we think about Jesus and the resurrection, it's very familiar to us. I want you to imagine that you had been in a very religious place. It almost seemed like you had a God for everything, and you had never heard anything about this Jesus character, and you certainly had never heard about resurrection from the dead. I want you to imagine that you hear this man in the marketplace say, there's a man named Jesus, and he actually rose from the grave. That would have sounded crazy. It would have sounded like babbling. It would have sounded like something extraordinary. And what they have to decide to do is, are we going to listen to him? And the answer is yes. Why? Because they love that kind of thing. 
I want you to think about like our present culture and the way that there is such open-mindedness to so many different things. And while we know that there is a reluctance to the gospel because a lot of people have heard it and have developed some sort of wall and barrier around wanting to hear it, we still live in a very pluralistic culture that wants to hear all kinds of things. So I wonder if maybe we've been going about it all the wrong way. I wonder if there are things in our culture that we can leverage in to telling people about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. It was new and foreign, and they loved that kind of thing. So, so rather than stoning him, they, uh, rather than running him out of town like the other cities that we've seen in, uh, in Acts, we see that they'd go, hey, listen, come with us. Now, Paul's got to be thinking at this point, I think I've heard this one before. Are y'all going to stone me? I, I'm, I'm willing. Let's go. And where do they lead him? They lead him right into the center of the culture, the Areopagus. This was a, this was a place uh, made of stone that would have had some sort of elevated seating where people could hear all day new ideas, new thoughts, new things to think about, new things to ponder. They would have ushered him into that space, and there was a council of philosophers that were there to hear what he had to say. This is a really cool opportunity. What does Paul do? He shares the good news, but he begins to contextualize it. He says, I know that you're religious. Why? Because I saw all of the things that you use to worship. I saw the objects of worship. He said, you're religious, so religious that you have an altar to the unknown God, just in case you forgot one, just because you couldn't come up with it. I know that you're religious because I've seen it. I know you're artistic because you sing about the unknown God saying in him we live and move and have our being. I know that you're not just religious and artistic. I know that you're fashioned like God. That's where he kind of really takes a turn. He goes, I really understand you guys. Why? Because I can quote your poetry back to you. You're fashioned like God. But here's where you go wrong. You say of Zeus... That's, that's who this poetry was written about in him. You live and move and have your being. You're like him. You're, you're one of his offspring. That's what Paul kind of centered on in the context of their culture and the singing of their songs. I want you to imagine that you had seen, uh, heard not just some meaningless pop music, just the drivel kind of every day, but that you had heard something in a song and you go, man, that's the gospel. I wish that I could have a conversation with that artist who actually wrote that song and just tell him, you're right there. You get it. That's what Paul's doing. You're fashioned like him, not of gold or silver or stone, not an icon of art. You did not make God. He made you. And after giving a voice to the Athenian values, he shows how the gospel completes them. He doesn't run away from them. He doesn't demonize them. He takes them on common ground and says, I understand these things more fully than you do, and I've got great news for this good life that you've always been after. That's what Paul's doing. Do you see how intentional this evangelism is? Verse 30. Now he commends all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man 
They already knew who that was. They had heard him talking about Jesus and his resurrection. And he's talking here about this man, this appointed man. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What he's saying is, listen, I know that you think that you've got all of this good life under wraps. You've found all of the gods that there are out there. You've written the songs. You've explored all of the philosophies. But this unknown God, he's worthy. He's worthy to be known. He's not out of reach. He's near to you. That's what Paul is telling them. He's saying you've angered this unknown God, but the good news is is that all people everywhere ought to repent of the sin of neglecting the God that has created you and have faith in this appointed man named Jesus and live as God's offspring. He's weaving all of this stuff together so that you might have assurance because he was raised from the dead and you can be raised too. The Athenian good life was wanting, and Paul's good news completes it. I wonder if we live in the midst of a culture that has the very same thing going on. There's a lot of good wants and desires. Every love song that's ever been written finds its place in Jesus Christ. Every longing of the human heart finds its place in the resurrection from the dead. Every idea, every thought, every effort to become immortal is actually found in the person of Jesus Christ, not just in him as a person, but the fact that he is alive, that he has risen from the grave. Everything that is in our hopes and dreams is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the good news that Paul was sharing with the Athenians. This good news is winsome. And he is approaching the Athenian culture, the Athenian good life, with the good news of the gospel. And what he's doing is ushering people towards the gospel good life in Jesus. Why? Because the gospel good life, this is the final point here before we talk about evangelism, the gospel good life is a resurrected life. It is a vital life. It is a vibrant life. It is a life of love. It is a life of affection with Jesus. This passage tells us that God is a knowable creator who sacrificed everything to be with us. He is alive He is just, and He will return to make everything right again. I want to take a moment just there on that point. I want to repeat it real fast because I want you to think about our culture. Jesus is alive. He is alive, He is just, and He will return again to make everything right. In the the midst of the just social justice explosion. Culture has given us one of the greatest opportunities ever to declare the gospel. Do you know and understand, regardless of how you feel, I know that there are a variety of feelings in this room about the social justice movement, and I think that uh, each one of us has like a competing uh, truth about this movement. Like, it's really complex, right? But do you see the fact that everybody is longing for justice? Everybody is longing for heaven, We have such an opportunity to tell this world about what real justice is and who is really going to bring it. And you know what? It's not just a justice that ends with your life. 
It's not something where it's like, well, that'd be good if I could bring more justice to the world, but ultimately I'm going to die. I'm going to be in the ground. I'm not going to know anything about World War III or five or ten. No. The good news of the gospel is that there is eternal and infinite justice through and underneath King Jesus. Man, if that's not an opportunity to be winsome in our culture today, I don't know what is. If we can't have conversations with people who are longing for justice and just tweak it a little bit and show them how they are building a religion, they are fashioning a God, they are fashioning an idol to suit themselves. But if you just understood how much more Jesus loves justice and how willing he was to endure justice so that there might be justice forever, you'd get it. You'd have a gospel life. You'd have a good life with Jesus. That's what I think. Jesus is the whispers of our poetry. It is the reason that we are singing. He is the end of our philosophy. He is the God who is worthy of worship, just like the Athenians. And that shapes everything for us. Life with Jesus, uh, both now and and eternally, is the good life. Do you get it? Life with Jesus is the good life. It's not your best life now. It's your best life forever. Jesus is the good life. Life with Jesus is the good life. You're like, man, you're repeating that a lot. Jesus is the good life. Do you believe it? How is the gospel good life, the good life that we've always longed for? The gospel good life is freedom It's freedom from sin, it's freedom from encumbrances, it's uh, freedom from the former nature, and it's just life with Jesus. You're like, what are you doing? Here's what I want you to know and understand. This is the way that the gospel can be winsome to us. The gospel life is freedom. Do people want freedom? They want freedom. The gospel good life is beautiful. It's It's a... life of self-forgetfulness and service of others. It's no ego. It's uh, the thing that could be the crucible of some of the most beautiful art in history and could continue to be. The gospel good life is prosperous. You're like, man, I really don't know that I agree with that. Here's the thing. Do you think that Jesus came to usher in a kingdom of poverty? I'm not asking you what he's calling you to in this moment. That's not what I'm asking you. I'm asking you, do you think that the kingdom to come is a kingdom of poverty? No, it's not. It's a kingdom of like crystal seas, of uh, roads that can only be described in gold. I mean, John didn't even have the words for what he was seeing in heaven. God's kingdom is beautiful. It is prosperous. Why does it sound weird to say that the gospel good life is prosperous, it's because maybe we've misunderstood what God is actually bringing us into. Again, I'm not talking that, I'm not saying that you will receive tenfold here on this earth. You may not, probably won't. In fact, what God promises us here on this earth isn't always all that great. It can include sickness. It can include poverty. It can include a lot of things that don't feel like prosperity, 
but it's just a little while. You're being ushered into a forever kingdom with Jesus, and it's not one of poverty. Doesn't that excite you? Isn't that something that sounds like a good life? The gospel good life is meaningful. God's purpose uh, will actually bind eternal significance to our daily duties. For, for the moms in the room, the good life with Jesus actually binds significance to our daily duties. For the accountants in the room, like the good life with Jesus binds significance and meaning to daily duties. Why? Why is that? It's because everything that we do as Christians has eternal consequences. Everything you do. That means that changing a diaper, speaking kindly with a roommate, sharing the gospel has eternal consequences. That's a meaningful life. That means you don't have to be the CEO. It means that you don't have to be the member of the country club. It means that you don't have to have children. It means a lot of things. It means that the gospel good life with Jesus binds significance to everything you do. That's a good life. It's good news for those who are feeling isolation, for those who are feeling uh, detested and detached, for those who are on the margins of society. If you don't think that hearing that your life has meaning and significance that can be found in Jesus, and that it's not just for this life, it's for forever, if you don't think that that sounds like good news to people, man, it's great news. The gospel good life is virtuous and moral. Why? Because Jesus is our exemplar and obedience to his commandments actually begets a virtuous and moral life. Jesus was the greatest philosopher who ever lived. He had really intentional things that he commands of us. And they are good. They are for our good. And living them out actually makes you a better person. It's like, man, I sure do feel like there are a lot of things that I'm saying this morning that just feel in some way like they're like, man, I don't hear that a lot in churches. Man, the truth is, is that obedience to Jesus sanctifies you and makes you more and more like Jesus every day. The gospel good life is virtuous and moral. And finally, the gospel good life is eternal. If you want to hear the best news, if you want to share the best news about this gospel good life, it's that it's everlasting. The good life with Jesus never ends. Death is a mere doorway into the forever good life. Are we inviting people into that? Do we believe it? We ought to. Because I'll remind you again, Christians declare the good news for the good life to all people everywhere. That's what Paul says. All people everywhere. That's evangelism. That is evangelism. So, so we, can't, we can't hide away from it. For those of you who like shudder at the word evangelism and you're like, man, he's going to ask me to do something that's like super uncomfortable. You're right, I am. I'm about to ask you to do some things with your life that are super uncomfortable, but they are good and they are part of the good life. I want to first discuss evangelism in general by looking at Paul in Athens. There are five things that evangelism is that I'm going to go through like blazing fast. And if you want my notes, email me. I'll send them to you. But then I want to actually use a little bit of time at the very end to talk about what evangelism looks like at City Church. 
What are the expectations that we want to kind of just blend in to our life as a body? Five things that evangelism is. Evangelism is motivated by love. Paul was provoked in his spirit. He had a loving pity for those people who longed and were moving towards the God of this universe but just could not see him. They were blind. You cannot and will not help someone that you don't love. Do you know that? You cannot and you will not help someone that you don't love. And Paul was motivated. He was provoked in his spirit by loving pity. He, he considered what life without Jesus would look like, and he knew that it would lead to death. I want to ask a question. It's a hard question. It's a hard question for me. It's likely a hard question for all of us. How much would we have to hate our friends and family not to share the good news with them if the end of unbelief is forever death? Evangelism is motivated by love. Paul shows us that. But it's also uh, evangelism is disorienting. Paul's message was confusing. It was disorienting to the people of Athens. The Epicureans were materialistic, and they avoided pain and sought pleasure wherever they could find it. The Stoics believed that God was kind of generally in everything. Again, there's a lot of different veins of Stoicism, but they were, they were communal in their morality. They, they wanted and saw the purpose of one's life to actually make things better for other people. And here, Paul comes in, and says something that is just so mind-blowing that Jesus rose from the grave and they were confused. Both the Epicureans and the Stoics were admittedly confused. What, what is this guy babbling about? Something about foreign deities and resurrection? Why? Why is it disorienting to people? It's because you're speaking to everything that someone has always believed. And you should expect that when you confront somebody's idea of the good life and are trying to reorient that, that there is going to be something disorienting about that, something confusing about that. Evangelism is disorienting. Thirdly, evangelism starts with commonality. It starts on common grounds. Paul starts with reason, and he uses things that were familiar to them. Paul specifically uses creation and human nature. He says, uh, listen, these, uh, these you know, idols that you're making, they're gold and silver and stone, but your poets say that y'all are his offspring. Are you a stone? Are you gold? Are you silver? Or are you flesh? He's finding common grounds with them to tell them about Jesus who came in the flesh. Evangelism starts with commonality. What things do we have in common with non-believers? What part of our cultural good life can we kind of leverage into telling them about the good, uh, good news of Jesus' new life that he gives each one of us? I think that we can speak to the individualisticness in our worldview as Americans because that has led to isolation and depression and suspicion, but the gospel leads to the desires of one's heart, which is knownness. You can be more deeply known by God and more deeply loved than you ever dared imagine that you would be. That's good news to a culture that isolation has left them fragmented and stowed away in isolation. It's good news. It can speak to the happiness that they desire, the trust that they want. The gospel speaks to these themes of isolation. 
and where to find and experience joy and what truth is and how you can trust, how you can have faith. Evangelism starts with commonality and moves towards declaring truth. So the the fourth thing is that evangelism confronts lies and declares truth. Paul is no shrinking violet. He's confrontational. We know this about him. He's confrontational, and, and he does well by it, but a lot of us were just like, man, I don't, I don't understand how you do that. Verse 24, it says, uh, the God who made the world, Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He's destroying these ideas of what these idols were. Since he himself gives all to mankind, life and breath and everything that they have, What he's essentially telling the Athenians is you're wrong about who God is and you're wasting your time. He's confronting lies that they're believing. But he backs it up with truth. Verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth and having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Paul's confronting lies with truth. Paul says, God made you and you're blind to it, but you can sense something of who he is. And finally, evangelism is met with different responses. We actually see this in the text, don't we? Look down towards the end of this passage. We see uh, in verse 32, it says this. It says uh, that he was mocked. Now, when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked him. We don't even have to do all that much work on that. Some people are going to mock you. If you evangelize, if you tell other people about Jesus, you will be mocked. It may be to your face. It may be behind your back, probably will be behind your back. You're going to be mocked. Do you have a truth that's greater than that mockery? Do you have something more valuable than your personal reputation? The second response is curiosity. We see in this passage, we'll hear, you, we'll hear you again about this. There's a hesitation. Could resurrection truly be true? These people say that this man Jesus rose from the grave. And the philosophers know that if somebody rose from the grave, everything changes. And it piques their curiosity. Finally, in verse 34, we see that some believe. Some join them. Dionysius... Damaris and others. And what we need to know and understand for this mission of evangelism is that he that sows is nothing, he that reaps is nothing, it is God that gives the increase. But even in that, you understand that there's no such thing as not sowing or not reaping. It doesn't give us that option. Why? Because Jesus commands us, go therefore making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey the commandments of Christ. You don't get an option. That's an imperative. It's not just an imperative, it's something that is declarative over your life. It is a matter of obedience. Hear me say this this morning, beloved, evangelism is a matter of obedience to the person that you call king of your life. So I want to ask this question. 
I want to ask this question and talk about our discipleship groups and one of the ways that I want to do this and accomplish this together. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to just talk uh, from my heart on this one. How is it that we can enact this kind of evangelism at City Church? Because here's the truth. We have gifted people for evangelism. We have people who are sharing the gospel. But I think that as a body, it is something that we need to grow in. Do you agree with me? I think that it's something that we need to grow in. How can we grow in this? What should we do? Well, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. For those of us who are members of this church, who are in a discipleship group, I actually want our discipleship groups to take this piece and actually begin to enact it by holding one another accountable for sharing the good news for the good life. Why don't we share the gospel is a pretty important question. And I think that at some level it's because we doubt that it is the good news for the good life. So talk about that in your groups. What is it personally that you are not believing about the gospel that leaves you kind of impotent in your exclamations about who Jesus is? What is it, just as a group this week, I want for our discipleship groups just to ask the question like, hey, where are you evangelizing? And if the answer is no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but we're going to grow together. Hey, why is that? Why don't we share the gospel with others? You might be surprised at some of the answers you find. I want you to think about it before you get to your discipleship group. We must be personally transformed by Jesus and seeing life with him forever as the greatest asset that we can bequeath to someone else. I think we also don't do it because of fear of man. It's scary to cast our lots in with this Jesus guy this Jesus artist, this Jesus philosopher, this Jesus king. It was appealing to some of the people there in Athens because they loved art, they loved philosophy. I, I, I think that there is something, though, in us that fears what it would look like if we truly cast our lots with Jesus. Lastly, I think that we associate uh, evangelism with things that we don't really know how to do. The Romans Road, the Ten Canons of God's Law, the Evangicube. Like we associate evangelism with like door-to-door evangelism or standing on a street corner. And that's our idea of what evangelism is. And if that's your idea of evangelism, maybe God's calling you to do that. There's nothing wrong with those things. I hope that you would. I hope that you would do it with grace. I hope that you would be prepared to do it. That's wonderful. For most of us, I think that we need a little bit more of a baby step here. And so here's what I want from the members of City Church. I want you to commit to monthly sharing the good news of the good life to someone. Monthly. It's 12 people a year. Okay, you're like, man, that, that is like super specific. Listen, come up with something that works for you. Just share the gospel. Come up with a plan to share the gospel what does that look like? First, I just want you to get comfortable saying Jesus' name out loud. Can we be honest that it, with non-believers, sometimes it is very uncomfortable just to say Jesus' name out loud. For those of you who don't even know what I'm talking about, you're probably gifted in evangelism, and I hope that you would teach us more about what evangelism is and show us the way on this. But for the rest of us, it can be really uncomfortable saying Jesus' name out loud to somebody that doesn't know him. I want for us as a church just to be able to talk about Jesus. Second, I want you to tell people specifically about what you're reading and learning. 
Here's the deal, okay? This can sound really overwhelming. I want for it to be very simple for us. In our discipleship groups here on Sunday, in our worship events that we do, we are doing something where you are learning something about Jesus. And it likely boils down into something that is just a nugget of gold that you can give to someone. If you and your discipleship group are going through the story of Lazarus and you see Jesus raise a dead guy and somebody asks you in the course of that week, hey, how are you doing? And you go, man, this week's been a hard week, but I was at my discipleship group the other night and I realized Jesus raises dead people. It can be that simple. One of the things that I'm struck by is that throughout the gospel, even Jesus, but Paul and Peter, they don't always like share like a fully formed, like, you know, here's the gospel presentation. Like, what did what did Paul do before he wrote the Romans Road? Like, who knows? Like, like, Jesus sometimes comes and all he says is, the kingdom is here. And you're like, that's it? That's it. That's all Jesus said. The kingdom is here. Sometimes our gospel proclamations don't necessarily need to be comprehensive. I think that we kind of cut ourselves off thinking that they have to be. What I want us to do is say Jesus' name and tell people what we're learning about. When Paul gets busted out of prison, tell other people, God gives me freedom. When Jesus cries out on the cross, why have you forsaken me? Tell other people, God has not forsaken me. When Jesus heals a blind person, tell other people, Jesus helps me see. Does that sound simplistic or unrealistic? Do you think that that's not going to work? We need a plan to shake us out of our evangelical paralysis. And I like my plan better than no plan. So I'm asking you guys to join me in it. I'm going to be learning how to do this alongside of you. If you've got questions about that as a discipleship member or leader, I want to talk about it. We need to be a church that's sharing with people. Can you imagine what would happen here at City Church and in this city if everybody in this room just did what I'm talking about once a month, it probably would not result in hundreds of people coming to know Jesus, but I'll bet you anything that the Spirit honors it and we see people going from death into life and we could celebrate that mightily as a body. Create a monthly plan, discipleship groups. Learn where one another is being called to share the good news of the good life and hold one another accountable to this. Let's pray. God, we, we just ask you that you would help us to share the good news of the good life. We ask you that you would uh, embolden us in the power of the Spirit, with the power of your Word, with the power of other believers alongside of us to go and take the good news of the gospel to others. We ask that you would bless our mumbles and fumbles, bless us as we uh, look foolish for your kingdom. Father, I pray, I pray, I pray that you would help us to learn how to share the good news of Jesus with people who are longing for more. I pray that you would help us know and understand that the life with you, the life with Jesus is the good life, and that is what we want to share with others. And I've Finally, Father, I pray in all humility that you would allow for these meager efforts to bear fruit in the lives of people across this city. Father, would you encourage us by being able to see people come into your kingdom 
And I pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus.